1984, when my mother and I left and my father was left alone in Iran, that was yet another major dramatic and traumatic separation. When I look back um, at the events of 1979, I think, you know, people constantly think about uh, the revolution having, um, in some ways, blown up Iran. But it also blew up families, and my own family was among them. The world has overlooked an important episode in modern history, the 800,000 Jews who left or were driven from their homes in Arab nations and Iran in the mid-20th century. This series, brought to you by American Jewish Committee, explores that pivotal moment in Jewish history and the rich Jewish heritage of Iran and Arab nations as some begin to build relations with Israel. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Join us as we explore family histories and personal stories of courage, perseverance, and resilience. This is The Forgotten Exodus. Today's episode, Leaving Iran. Outside Israel, Iran has the largest Jewish population in the Middle East. Yes, the Islamic Republic of Iran in 2022. Though there is no official census, experts estimate about 10,000 Jews now live in the region, previously known as Persia. But since the 1979 Iranian Revolution, Jews in Iran don't advertise their Jewish identity. They adhere to Iran's morality code. Women stay veiled from head to toe, and men and women who aren't married or related stay apart in public. They don't express support for Israel. They don't ask questions, and they don't disagree with the regime. One might ask, with all these don'ts, is this a way of living a Jewish life? Or a way to live, period? For author, journalist, and poet Roya Hakakian and her family, the answer was ultimately no. Roya has devoted her life to being a fact finder and truth teller. A former associate producer at the CBS News show 60 Minutes and a Guggenheim Fellow, Roya has written two volumes of poetry in Persian and three books of nonfiction in English the first of which was published in 2004, Journey from the Land of No, a memoir about her charmed childhood and a cursed adolescence growing up Jewish in Iran under two different regimes. It was hugely important for me to create an account that could be relied on as a historic document. And I did my best through being very, very careful about gathering, interviewing, talking to, observing uh, facts, evidence, documents um, from everyone, including my most immediate members of my family, to do what we, both as reporters, but also as Jews, are called to do, which is to bear witness. No seemed to be the backdrop of life for women, especially of religious minorities, and in my own case, Jewish background. So I thought, what better way to name the book than to call it, you know, as what my experience had been, which was the constant no's that I heard. So land of no was Iran. As a journalist, as a Jew, as a daughter of Iran, Roya will not accept no for an answer. After publishing her memoir, she went on to write Assassins of the Turquoise Palace, a meticulously reported book about a widely underreported incident in 1992, at a Berlin restaurant, a terrorist attack by the Iranian proxy Hezbollah 
targeted and killed four Iranian Kurdish exiles. The book highlighted Iran's enormous global footprint, made possible by its terror proxies, who don't let international borders get in the way of silencing Iran's critics. Roya also co-founded the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center, an independent nonprofit that reports on Iran's human rights abuses. Her work has not prompted Ayatollah Khomeini to publicly issue a fatwa against her, like the murder order against Salman Rushdie issued by his predecessor. But in 2019, one of her teenage sons answered a knock at the door. It was the FBI, warning her that she was in the crosshairs of the Iranian regime's operatives in America. Most recently, Roya wrote a beginner's guide to America for the immigrant and the curious about the emotional roller coaster of arriving in America while still missing a beloved homeland, especially one where their community has endured for thousands of years. I felt very strongly that one stays in one's homeland, that you don't just simply take off when things go wrong, that you stick around and try to figure a way through a bad situation. We came to the point where staying didn't seem uh, like it would lead to any sort of uh, real life, and leaving was the only option. The story of Jews in Iran, often referred to as Persia until 1935, is a millennia-long tale, a saga of suffering, repression, and persecution, peppered with brief moments of relief or at least relative peace, as long as everyone plays by the rules of the regime. The history of Jews in Iran goes back to around 2,700 years ago. And a lot of people assume that Jews came to Iran in five, well, at that time it was called the Persian Empire, in 586 BCE with a Babylonian exile. But Jews actually came a lot earlier. We are thinking 721, 722 BCE with the Assyrian exile, which makes us one of the oldest Jewish communities. That's Dr. Saba Sumek, a professor of world religions and Middle Eastern history, and the author of From the Shahs to Los Angeles, Three Generations of Iranian Jewish Women Between Religion and Culture. She also serves as Associate Director of American Jewish Committee in Los Angeles, home to America's largest concentration of Persian Jewish immigrants. Saba's parents fled Iran in 1978, shortly before the revolution, when Saba and her sister were toddlers. She has devoted her career to preserving Iranian Jewish history. Saba said Zoroastrian rulers until the 7th century Common Era vacillated between tolerance and persecution of Jews. For example, according to the biblical account in the book of Ezra, Cyrus the Great freed the Jews from Babylonian rule, granted all of them citizenship, and permitted them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. The book of Esther goes on to tell the story of another Persian king, believed to be Xerxes I, whose closest advisor, called Haman, conspires to murder all the Jews, a plot that is foiled by his wife, Queen Esther, who is Jewish herself. Esther heroically pleads for mercy on behalf of her people, a valor that is celebrated on the Jewish holiday of Purim. But by the time of the Islamic conquest in the middle of the 7th century Common Era, the persecution had become so intense that Jews were hopeful about the new Arab Muslim regime, even if that meant being tolerated and treated as second-class citizens, or demi-status. But that status had a different interpretation for the Safavids. 
Really, things didn't get bad for the Jews of the Persian Empire until the 16th century with the Safavid dynasty. Because within Shia Islam in the Persian Empire, what they brought with them is this understanding of purity and impurity. And Jews were placed in the same category as dogs, pigs, and feces. They were seen as being religiously impure, what's referred to as najes. Jews were placed in ghettos called mahaleh, where they wore yellow stars and special shoes to distinguish them from the rest of the population. They could not leave the Mahale when it rained, for fear that if water rolled off their bodies into the water system, it would render a Shia Muslim impure. For the same reason, they could not go to the bazaars for fear they might contaminate the food. They could not look Muslims in the eye. They were relegated to certain artisanal professions, such as silversmithing and block printing, crafts that dirtied one's hands. By the 19th century, some European Jews did make their way to Persia to help. The Alliance Israelite Universelle, a Paris-based network of schools founded by French Jewish intellectuals, opened schools for Jewish children throughout the Middle East and North Africa, including within the Mahalais in Persia. They saw themselves as being incredibly sophisticated because they were getting this, you know, in a sense, a secular European education. They were speaking French. And the idea behind the Allianz schools was exactly that. These poor Middle Eastern Jews, one day the world is going to open up to them, their countries are going to become secular, and we need to prepare them for this, not only within the context of hygiene, but education, language. And the Allianz schools were right when it came to the Persian Empire because who came into power was Reza Pahlavi, who was a Francophile, and he turned around and said, wow, look at the population that speaks French, that knows European philosophy, etc., are the Jews. He brought them out of the Mahaleh, the Jewish ghettos, and said, I don't care about religion, assimilate into culturate, as long as you show, in a sense, devotion and nationalism to the Pahlavi regime, which the Jews did. Not all Jews, but a majority of them did. Reza Pahlavi took control in 1925 and 16 years later abdicated his throne to his son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. In 1935, Persia adopted a new name, Iran. As king or the Shah, both father and son set Iran on a course of secularization and rapid modernization, under which Jewish life and success seemed to flourish. The only condition was that religious observance was kept behind closed doors. The idea was that in public, you were secular, and in private, you were a Jew. You know, you had Shabbat, you only married a Jew. It was considered blasphemous if you married outside of the Jewish community. And it was happening because people were becoming a part of everyday schools, universities. But that's why the Jewish day schools became so important. They weren't learning Judaism. What it did was ensure that in a secular Muslim society, that the Jewish kids were marrying within each other and within the community. It was, in a sense, the golden age. And that will explain to you why, unlike the 19, early 1950s, where you had this exodus of Mizrahi Jews, Arab Jews from the Arab world in North Africa, you didn't really have that in Iran. In fact, Iran provided a safe passage to Israel for Jewish refugees during that exodus, specifically those fleeing Iraq. The Pahlavi regime considered Israel a critical ally in the face of pan-Arab fervor and hostility in the region. Because of the Arab economic boycott, Israel needed energy sources and Iran needed customers for its oil exports. A number of Israelis even moved to Tehran, including farmers from Kibbutzim who had come to teach agriculture, and doctors and nurses from Hadassah Hospital who had come to teach medicine. 
El Al flew in and out of Tehran Airport, albeit from a separate terminal. Taking advantage of these warm relations between the two countries, Roya recalls visiting aunts, uncles, and cousins in Israel. We arrived, and my mom and dad did what all visiting Jews from elsewhere do. They dropped to their knees, and they started kissing the ground. I did the same, and it was so moving. And Israel was uh, the promised land. We thought about Israel. We dreamed about Israel. But at the same time, we were Iranians, and we were living in Iran, and things were good. This seems to non-Iranian Jews an impossibility. But I think for most of us, it was the way things were. We lived in the country where we had lived for, you know, God knows how many years. And then there was this other place that we somehow, in the back of our minds, thought we would be going to without knowing exactly when, but that it would be the destination. Relations between the Shah and America flourished as well. In 1951, a hugely popular politician by the name of Mohammad Mossadegh became prime minister and tried to institute reforms. His attempts to nationalize the oil industry and reduce the monarchy's authority didn't go over well. American and British intelligence backed a coup that restored the Shah's power. Many Iranians resented America's meddling, which became a rallying cry for the revolution. U.S. officials have since expressed regret for the CIA's involvement. In November 1977, President Jimmy Carter welcomed the Shah and his wife to Washington, D.C. to discuss peace between Egypt and Israel, nuclear nonproliferation, and the energy crisis. As an extension of these warm relations, the Shah sent many young Iranians to America to enhance their university studies, exposing them to Western ideals and values. Meanwhile, a savvy fundamentalist cleric was biding his time in a Paris basement. It wouldn't be long before relations crumbled between Iran and Israel, Iran and the U.S., and Iran and its Jews. Royo recalls the Hakakian house at the corner of the Alley of the Distinguished in Tehran as a lush oasis surrounded by fragrant flowers, full of her father's poetry and brimming with family memories. Located in the heart of a trendy neighborhood across the street from the Shah's charity organization, the tall juniper trees, fragrant honeysuckle, and gold mezuzah mounted on the doorframe set it apart from the rest of the homes. Roya's father, Hagnazar, was a poet and a respected headmaster at a Hebrew school. Roya, which means dream in Persian, was a budding poet herself, with the typical hopes and dreams of a Jewish teenage girl. Prior to the revolution, Life in an average Tehran Hebrew day school looked very much like life um, in a Hebrew day school anywhere else. In the afternoons, we had all Hebrew and Jewish studies. Um, we used to, you know, uh, put on a Purim show every year. I wanted to be Esther. I never got to be Esther. We had emissaries, I think, a couple of years from Israel who came to teach us how to do Israeli folk dance. There were moments when Royo recalls feeling self-conscious about her Jewishness, particularly at Passover. That's when the family spent two weeks cleaning, demonstrating they weren't Natchez or dirty Jews. The work was rewarded when the house filled with the fragrance of cumin and saffron and Persian dishes flowed from the kitchen, including apple and plum beef stew, 
tarragon veal balls stuffed with raisins, and rice garnished with currants and slivers of almonds. When her oldest brother Alberto left to study in America, a little fact-finding work on Roya's part revealed that his departure wasn't simply the pursuit of a promising opportunity. As a talented cartoonist, whose work had been showcased during an exhibition in Tehran, his family feared Alberto's pen might have gone too far, offending the Pahlavi regime and drawing the attention of the Shah's secret police. Reports of repression, rapid modernization, the wide gap between Tehran's rich and the rest of the country's poor, and a feeling that Iranians weren't in control of their own destiny, all became ingredients for a revolution. Stoked by an exiled cleric named Rahala Khomeini, who was recording cassette tapes in a Paris basement and circulating them back home. He would just sit there and go on and on for hours going against the Shah and West toxification. And then the recordings ended up in Iran. He wasn't even in Iran until the Shah left. Promises of democracy and equality galvanized Iranians of all ages to overthrow the Shah in February 1979. Even the CIA was surprised. I think a lot of people didn't believe it because, number one, the Shah, the son, was getting the most amount of military equipment from the United States than anyone in the Middle East and in the Persian Gulf. And, you know, the idea was you protect us in the Gulf and we will give you whatever you need. So they never thought that a man with a beard down to his knee was able to overthrow this regime that was being propped up and supported by America and also the Europeans. Khomeini comes in and represents himself as a person for everyone. And he was brilliant in the way he spoke about it. And the reason why this revolution was also successful was that it wasn't just religious people who supported Khomeini. There was this concept you had the men with the turbans, meaning the religious people, and the bow ties or the ties, meaning the secular men. A lot of them who were sent by the Shah abroad to Europe and America to get an education, who came back, saw democracy there, and wanted it for their country. Very few of the revolutionaries could predict that Tehran was headed in the opposite direction and was about to revert to 16th century Shia Islamic rule. For almost a year, Tehran and the rest of the nation were swept up in revolutionary euphoria. Royo recalls how the flag remained green, white, and red, but an Allah insignia replaced its old sword-bearing lion. New currency was printed, with portraits bearing beards and turbans. An ode to Khomeini became the new national anthem. While the Shah had escaped on an Air France flight, Corpses of his henchmen graced the front pages of newspapers, alongside smiling executioners. All celebrated, until the day one of the corpses was Habib Elganian, the Jewish philanthropist who supported all of Iran's Hebrew schools, charged and convicted as a Zionist spy. Elders in the community remembered the insurmountable accusations of blood libel during darker times for Iran's Jews. But younger generations like Roya's, who had not lived through the eras of more ruthless anti-Semitism and persecution, continued to root for the revolution, regardless of its victims. Meanwhile, Roya's Jewish day school was taken over by a new veiled headmistress, who replaced Hebrew lessons with other kinds of religious instruction and required robes and headscarves for all the students. In the afternoons from then on, we used to have lessons in... Um, you know, a series of what she called 
Is religion something that you inherit or is it something that you choose? And so I think the intention clearly was to convince us that we didn't need to inherit our religions from our parents and ancestors, that we ought to consider better choices. But when the headmistress cut short the eight-day Passover break, that was the last straw for Roya and her classmates. Their revolt got her expelled from school. Though Jews did not universally support Khomeini, some saw themselves as members of the Iranian Communist or Tudet Party. They opposed the Shah and the human rights abuses of his monarchy and cautiously considered Khomeini the better option, or at least the lesser of two evils. Alarmed by the developments such as Elganian's execution and changes like the ones at Roya's school, Jewish community leaders traveled to the Shia holy city of Qam to assure the supreme leader of their loyalty to Iran. They did this because they wanted to make sure that they protected the Jewish community that was left in Iran. Khomeini made that distinction. I am not against Jews, I'm against Zionists. You could be Jewish in this country, you cannot be a Zionist in this country. But that wasn't the only change. Right away, the family protection law was reversed, lifting a law against polygamy, giving men full rights in divorce and custody, and lowering the marriage age for girls to nine. Women were banned from serving as judges, and beaches and sports events were segregated by gender. But it took longer to shut down universities, albeit for only two years, segregate public schools by gender, and stone to death women who were found to have committed adultery. Though Khomeini was certainly proving that he was not the man he promised to be, he backed away from those promises gradually, one brutal crackdown at a time. As a result, the trickle of Jews out of Iran was slow. My father thought, you know, let's wait a few years and see what happens. In retrospect, I think the overwhelming reason was probably that nobody believed that things had changed and so drastically. It seemed so unbelievable. I mean, a country that had been under monarchy for 2,500 years couldn't simply see it all go and have a whole new system put in place, especially when it was such a radical shift from what had been there before. So I think in many ways, we were among the unbelievers, or at least my father was. We thought it could never be, it would not happen. My father proved to be wrong. Nothing changed for the better, and the conditions continued to deteriorate. So, so much catastrophe happened in those few years that Iran just simply was steeped into a very dark, intense and period of political radicalism and also all sorts of economic shortages and pressures. And so the five years that we were left behind, that we stayed back, changed our perspective on so many things. In November 1979, a group of radical university students who supported the Iranian Revolution took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, seized hostages, and held them for 444 days until President Ronald Reagan's inauguration on January 20, 1981. During the hostages' captivity, Iraqi President Saddam Hussein invaded Iran. The conflict that ensued for eight years 
created shortages on everything from dairy products to sanitary napkins. Mosques became distribution centers for rations. We stood in line for hours and hours for eggs and, you know, just the very basic things of daily life. And then it became also clear that uh, religious minorities, including Jews, um, would no longer be enjoying the same privileges as everyone else. There were bombings that kept coming closer and closer to, uh, to Tehran, which is where we lived. And it was very clear that, you know, half of my family that was in the United States could not and would not return because they were boys who would have been, you know, conscripted to go to war. Everything had just come apart in a way that was inconceivable uh, to think that um, they would change for the better again. By 1983, new laws had been passed instituting Islamic dress for all women, violations of which earned a penalty of 74 lashes. Other laws imposed an Islamic morality code that barred co-ed gatherings. Roya and her friends found refuge in the sterile office building that housed the Jewish-Iranian Students Association. But she soon figured out that the regime hadn't allowed it to remain for the benefit of the Jewish community. It functioned more like a ghetto to keep Jews off the streets and out of their way. Even the activities that previously gave her comfort were marred by the regime. Poetry books were redacted. Mountain hiking trails were arbitrarily closed to mourn the deaths of countless clerics. Slowly what they realized when Khomeini gained power was that he was not the person that he claimed to be. He was not this feminist, if anything. All this misogynistic rule came in. And a lot of people realized they, in a sense, got duped and he stole the revolution from them. By 1984, the war with Iraq had entered its fourth year. But it was no longer about protecting Iran from Saddam Hussein. Now, the Ayatollah wanted to conquer Baghdad, then Jerusalem, where he aspired to deliver a sermon from the Temple Mount. Meanwhile, Muslim soldiers wounded in the war chose to bleed rather than receive treatment from Jewish doctors. Boys as young as 12, regardless of faith, were drafted and sent on suicide missions to open the way for Iranian troops to do battle. They were basically used as an army of children that, you know, the bombs would detonate, their parents would get a plastic key that was their the key to heaven. And, you know, the bombs would detonate and then the army would come in, the Iranian army would come in. And so that's when a lot of the Persian parents, the Jewish parents, freaked out. And that's when they were like, we're getting out of here. By this time, the Hakakian family had moved into a rented apartment building and Roya was attending the neighborhood school. Non-Muslim students were required to take Quran classes and could only use designated water fountains and bathrooms. As a precaution, Roya's father submitted their passports for renewal. Her mother's application was denied. Roya's passport was held for further consideration. Her father's was confiscated. One night, Roya returned home to find her father burning her books and journals on the balcony of their building. The bonfire of words was for the best, he told her, and at long last, so was leaving. With the help of the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, Roya and her mother Helen fled to Geneva and after wandering in Europe for several months, eventually reunited with her brothers in the United States. Roya did not see her father again for five years. Still unable to acquire a passport, he was smuggled out of Iran into Pakistan on foot. 
my eldest brother left uh, to come to America in the mid-70s. There was a crack sort of in, in the body of the uh, family then. But then came 1979 and my two other brothers followed. And, and so we were apart for all those very, very formative years. And then in 1984, when my mother and I left and my father uh, was left alone in Iran, that was yet another major dramatic and traumatic separation. You know, it's interesting that when I look back at the events of 1979, I think people constantly think about the revolution having in some ways blown up Iran, but it also blew up families and my own family was among them. While her father's arrival in America was delayed, Roya describes her arrival in stages. She first arrived as a Jewish refugee in 1985 and found her place doing what she had always done, writing in Persian, rebuilding a body of work that had been reduced to ashes. As a teen, I had um, become a writer. People were encouraging me. So I continued to do it. It was the thing I knew how to do and... Um, it, it gave me a sense of grounding and identity. So I kept on doing it, and, and it, it kind of worked its magic. I suppose good writing does for all writers. It connected me to a new community of people who read Persian and who uh, appreciated what I was trying to do. And, you know, I found that with each book that I write, I find a new tribe for myself. She arrived again once she learned English. In her first year at Brooklyn College, she tape-recorded her professors to listen again later. She eventually took a course with renowned poet Allen Ginsberg, whose poetry was best known for its condemnation of persecution and imperial politics, and whose 1950s poem, Howl, tested the boundaries of America's freedom of speech. When I mastered the language enough to feel comfortable to be a writer once more, then I found a footing and through Alan and a community of literary people that I met here, I began to kind of foresee the possibility of writing in English. There was also her arrival to an American Jewish community that was largely unaware of the role Jews played in shaping Iran long before the advent of Islam. Likewise, they were just as unaware of the role Iran played in shaping ancient Jewish life. They were oblivious to the community's traditions and the indignities and abuses Iranian Jews had suffered, continue to suffer, with other religious minorities to keep those traditions alive in their homeland. People would say, oh, you have an accent. Where are you from? I would say Iran. And the Jews at the synagogue would say, are there Jews in Iran? In Roya's most recent book, A Beginner's Guide to America, a sequel of sorts to her memoir, she reflects on the lessons learned and the observations made once she arrived in the U.S. She counsels newcomers to take their time answering what might at first seem like an ominous or loaded question. Here's an excerpt. In the early days after your arrival, where are you from is above all a reminder of your unpreparedness to speak of the past. You have yet to shape your story, what you saw, why you left, how you left, and what it took to get here. This narrative is your personal book of Genesis, the American volume, the one you will sooner or later pen in the mind, if not on the page. 
you must take your time to do it well and do it justice. No two immigrants' experiences are the same, she writes. The only thing they all have in common is that they have been uprooted and the stories of their displacement have been hijacked by others' assumptions and agendas. I witnessed, as so many other Iranian Jews witness, that uh, the story of how we came, why we came, who we had been, was being narrated by those who had a certain partisan perspective about what the history of Jewish people should be or how this history needs to be cast for whatever, you know, uh, purposes they had. And I would see that, you know, our own recollections of what had happened were being uh, shaded by or filtered through views other than our own or facts other than our own. As we wrap up this sixth and final episode of the first season of The Forgotten Exodus, it is clear that the same can be said about the stories of the Jewish people. No two tales are the same. Jews have lived everywhere, and there are reasons why they don't anymore. Some fled as refugees. Some embarked as dreamers. Some forged ahead without looking back. Others counted the days until they could return home. What ties them together is their courage, perseverance, and resilience. Whether they hailed from Eastern Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, or parts beyond. These six episodes offer only a handful of those stories shaped by memories and experiences. That became sort of an additional uh, incentive, if not burden, for me to, um, to be a witness for several communities to tell the story of what happened in Iran for American audiences, to Jews, to non-Iranian Jews who didn't realize that there were Jews in Iran, but also to, to record uh, the history according to how I had witnessed it for ourselves, to make sure that it goes down as I knew it. Iranian Jews are just one of the many Jewish communities who in the last century left their homes in the Middle East to forge new lives for themselves and future generations. Many thanks to Roya for sharing her family's story and for helping us wrap up this season of The Forgotten Exodus. If you're listening for the first time, check out our previous episodes on Jews from Iraq, Yemen, Egypt, Libya, and Sudan. Go to ajc.org slash theforgottenexodus where you'll also find transcripts, show notes, and family photos. There are still so many stories to tell. Stay tuned in coming months. Does your family have roots in North Africa or the Middle East? One of the goals of this series is to make sure we gather these stories before they are lost. Too many times during my reporting, I encountered children and grandchildren who didn't have the answers to my questions because they'd never asked. That's why one of the goals of this project is to encourage you to find more of these stories. Call the Forgotten Exodus hotline. Tell us where your family is from and something you'd like for our listeners to know, such as how you've tried to keep the traditions and memories alive. Call 212-891-1336 
and leave a message of two minutes or less. Be sure to leave your name and where you live now. You can also send an email to theforgottenexodus at ajc.org and we'll be in touch. Tune in every Friday for AJC's weekly podcast about global affairs through a Jewish lens, People of the Pod, brought to you by the same team behind The Forgotten Exodus. Atar Lakritz is our producer. Kukong Do is our production manager. TK Broderick is our sound engineer. Special thanks to John Schweitzer, Sean Savage, Ian Kaplan, and so many of our colleagues, too many to name, for making this series possible. And extra special thanks to David Harris, who has been a constant champion for making sure these stories do not remain untold. You can follow The Forgotten Exodus on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can sign up to receive updates at ajc.org slash Forgotten Exodus sign up. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. You can reach us at theforgottenexodus at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed the episode, please be sure to spread the word and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us.